Astronomy Cast, episode 591. What are we going to do with all that space junk? Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's uh, a new year. We just survived uh, covering the American Astronomical Society meeting. And the days are finally getting longer thanks to the tilt of the Earth tilting towards the sun. Go, go tilt. I heard a really troubling stat, and I, I haven't looked into it too deeply, but that before the internet age, there were about a hundred newspapers and television stations that had specific science journalists who specialized. There was a science section of the newspaper, a science section of the news. There were specialists. I can remember some of these, some of these people and we're now down to one. They're essentially the career, the job of the science journalist is no longer existent in traditional newspaper, the newspaper industry, which means that if you're getting your news from the newspaper, at best, you've got somebody who is covering a bunch of things trying to report on, on science news, which is... Or which freelancers. Is- There's some amazing freelancers out there and also... Uh, folks writing for various magazines, The Atlantic, for instance, regularly hires excellent science writers to write stories. Oh, yeah. But that's not the same thing as having your salary, your insurance and everything else you can that's count right. on just to write science. Yeah. And and I'm sure it's just a matter of time before that until that number is eventually zero. And on the one hand, obviously, as a digital science based journalism machine that is universe today, we yeah. We got you covered, but but you're not going to find out about us in the Washington Post or the LA Times or whatever. You're going to have to come looking. And so there is this lack of just general science news that's making its way into modern reporting at a high level of quality that's, that's able to give people the nuance, the skepticism that's important for being able to di- properly digest science news it's i don't know what the answer is and obviously you, you know for me obviously yeah. everyone just come read universe today but that's not the answer the answer is somehow to build proper science reporting back into the dna of more general news organizations i don't know what the answer is it's just freaking well, me out so now media is actually really helping to hopefully start a new thing. At least I hope this is the start of a new thing where they're running this show as well as the Daily Space on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And we're so grateful to be out there in front of all of you in Houston. And if you like this, please tell other people there's this way you can go get science. And maybe we can start a trend. Maybe we can make the cool shows in the evening, not just about what's in entertainment, but What's also out in the universe? All right. Well, we will get on with this week's show. But first, a message from our sponsor. Uh, This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Universe Today. If you want space news, you should come to Universe Today. It's the best place for space news. Space news, space news. And we're back. 
Remember the good old days when there were only a few thousand living and dead satellites? Well, those days are long over. We're now entering an era where there will be tens of thousands of satellites, not to mention the spent rocket boosters and other space junk. What kind of risk do we face and what can be done about it? We stand yeah. here, and obviously, I am contributing as a as as a beta test user of Starlink. Uh, I am I am part of the problem, but there is a lot of space junk, uh, more lots of satellites, more mayhem, more mischief. Set the scene. Where do we stand in the junkification of the universe? We are currently at a place where it is very hard to nair impossible to keep up with just how much stuff and fragments of stuff is orbiting our planet. A few years ago, we could easily say there is exactly 2,000 some odd satellites and any moment we knew exactly how many that were functional and orbiting our planet. While at the same time, there were hundreds of thousands of pieces of space junk, of shards of this, that, or the other thing that had been dropped, wrenches, golf balls, all orbiting our planet, constantly being tracked. Well, nowadays, we have a variety of different communications companies that are orbiting constellations of thousands of satellites, such that as we record this today, with a Starlink potentially launching between now and when this show airs, I'm just going to say there's more than 6,000 satellites functionally orbiting our mm -hmm. planet, and just shy of a million pieces of junk joining them in those orbits. But I think it's important to to break up the junk into groups because yeah. some is some some are really bad and others seem bad but they're actually almost entirely harmless. So can we can we segment the space junk into the stuff that is is up there and seems concerning but it's actually probably not a big problem. So so the probably not a problem stuff is dead geosynchronous satellites that have been lifted up into parking orbits. These are missions that no longer either have the fuel, the energy, or just the ability to control themselves, that before they got shut off, before they got completely worn down, they lifted themselves up into a high enough orbit that they're not in anybody's way, and they're just going round and round our planet a little over 24 hours per orbit as they're not quite in geosynchronous space. And they're going to stay up essentially forever. practically forever. Yes. Like maybe in a few million years, the interactions with the sun and the moon and the earth will kick them out of earth orbit and they'll orbit the sun, but the chances of them causing any kind of mayhem and they are moved even out of geosynchronous orbit when they die. Yes. So they are very safe. At the other end of the spectrum, we have the stuff that's very close to the Earth, and that stuff is actually surprisingly safe as well. So the stuff that's the closest in to the top of our atmosphere, it doesn't last very long once it breaks down because the drag of the atmosphere is just slowing it and slowing it and slowing it until very quickly it falls out of orbit, deteriorates in our atmosphere, assuming it's small enough. And we might get a great spark of light streaking across the sky in its final crash through the atmosphere, but 
it doesn't really have an opportunity to crash into anything before it does that final plunge. So this close-in stuff, the atmosphere takes care of it for us, and we are grateful. Right. And, I mean, people are people keep bringing up this argument, even about Starlink, about how Starlink is – they're going to be sending up – eventually tens of thousands of these satellites but they're only orbiting at an altitude of about i think it's about 350 to 500 kilometers and so they're sort of in the same place that the international space station is they're a little above the space station and they are under constant deterioration of their orbit the only way they can stay up is that they're constantly having to fire their krypton ion engine and without that within just a couple of years at the most they'll all just re-enter the earth's atmosphere and burn up so in fact having a lot more satellites flying closer to the earth is is better what's the worst is the stuff that's in that middle range and we'll get to that in a second But first, we've got to have a break. Well done. I can can be professional. And we're back. All right, so let's talk about the dangerous stuff. The stuff that's that's too close to the Earth to just drift away harmlessly. Stuff that's too far from the Earth to get nicely cleaned up on a regular basis. The stuff that's that's in the middle. Yeah, so... There was actually a case a few years ago of a Soviet dead satellite crashing into an Iridium communication satellite and leaving behind order of 2,000 shards of former spacecraft. And, And this is what happens when you have something that is in orbit, is dead, that may sometimes just happened to cross the orbit of something else because it's not like all the satellites are going in one direction. And if you get two satellites meeting in the night, that crash is going to fling pieces in all directions, Yeah, entering both higher and lower right. orbits. Yeah. Yeah, we we saw that with uh, there was a there was a recent anti satellite test that was carried out by I think the Indians about uh, a couple of years ago, and they blew up one of their satellites, and they thought, okay, well, it's just gonna it's a low flying satellite, it's almost dead, the debris is all gonna enter the atmosphere, it's fine, but no, some of the pieces went low and crashed up immediately, others are still flying around a year plus into the test, and and it was a it looks like it was a terrible mistake, some which are, could potentially even interact with the International Space Station. So when you get these kinds of collisions, you don't just get this nice little debris cloud that maintains the same orbit that the satellite was there before. You get chaos, and chaos makes chaos. And and the problem here is that exploding cloud of debris ends up forming a belt of debris around the planet as some of the pieces move faster, some of the pieces move slower, and as they end up with different velocities in all the directions around their orbit. And so we're running into problems where the lower orbiting ones can get annoying because you have to sometimes wait to launch a vehicle for something to get out of your way as you go to a higher orbit. But 
that's something we can generally plan around. It's annoying when you have a two-minute delay that suddenly becomes a 20-minute delay because of that thing that has to move. But if you instead end up with a belt of debris, you may not be able to get to the orbit you want from the place you want to launch if this becomes a serious problem. So far, we only have these few incidents. There's been a couple of purposeful satellite tests. There's been that accidental collision. But things in the middle ranges, we're going to eventually have to figure out a solution for as that space gets more and more crowded, because those things may eventually come down very, very slowly, getting dragged on by the tiny amount of atmosphere that is still up at those heights. But we're adding things faster than things are coming back. It's becoming a crowded space. So give us the worst case scenario. So the worst case scenario is you have some of the larger satellites that are up there collide and create entire bands of debris that are areas that aren't safe to put spacecraft. And we have to figure out how to go gather up all the small stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like cleaning your house. It's a lot easier to, well, clean up a cardboard box that your dog hasn't shredded. Right. Yeah. But, so, but imagine if the if the pieces from the cardboard box, to really stretch your metaphor, if the pieces from your cardboard box, any other box that they touch, explode those boxes into other little pieces, and you live in a box factory. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is, this is like a Christmas Day nightmare of cardboard boxes, wrapping right. paper, everything else, shredded in all directions, but attached to moving objects. Yeah, yeah, that are moving 28,000 kilometers per hour. The, yeah. And, and so there, there is actually a name for this called the Kessler Syndrome, I think so. And, yes. And this idea that, that you could just get this chain reaction of satellites crashing into other satellites, creating debris fields, shifting to different orbits, reaching other satellites, grinding those satellites up until you get to this point that you've got this – this impenetrable shield of shrieking metal that surrounds planet Earth. And we talked about this, the stuff that's low down interacts with the Earth's atmosphere, returns safely. The stuff that's high up, you've got some spaces, some gaps you could get through. But that middle stuff, the stuff that's in the 800 to 1200 kilometers high, it's never going away and you can never clean it up except one fragment at a time and as you wait every second you wait they just get smaller and smaller into smaller pieces of metal until you're trapped on earth forever and and one of the hard parts about this problem is there are amazing teams of engineers who have been out there partnering with various space agencies since the mid-80s to develop spacecraft capable of going out, grabbing dead satellites and either dropping them into lower orbits or moving them into higher orbits, essentially getting them out of danger's way. But while we've had the prototypes under development Going from inexpensive, relatively speaking, prototypes to actually expending the money to make a space-borne vehicle and expending the money on a launch, that final motivation is only now starting to be seen. And it's not being seen in terms of picking up space junk. It's being seen in terms of 
we finally have the ability to go glom onto old satellites and essentially refuel them. Right. And that's only been done twice so far. Right. Well, we're going to talk about solutions in a second. And one of the, I guess, worst examples of unintended consequences that I think I've heard in space junk. And we'll get to that in a second after the break. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by CosmoQuest. If you love finding rocks, measuring their size just day after day, hour after hour, if you've never wanted to hate an asteroid more, you should join CosmoQuest. And they'll put you yes. to work categorizing rocks, finding landing sites, hating asteroids. And we're back. All right. So you told me a story before we started today that I had never heard of. Tell me about this. So I, I really can't believe I didn't know about this till recently either. Uh, one of our good friends of the show, Gordon Dewis, was telling me about a specific form of space junk that was launched in 1961 and 1963 called either Westford Needles, Project Needles, or Project Westford. And this name caught my attention because I grew up in Westford, Massachusetts. And I was like, huh, I wonder if they have anything to do with each other. Even though I come from a small town that basically has two things, apple orchards and haystack observatory. Well, it turned out it has everything to do with haystack observatory's location, which is MIT's Lincoln Labs. Back in the 1950s, when we were just starting to see the rise of the Cold War, there was a lot of concern that the transoceanic communications cables could get purposefully cut by the Soviet Union. And we only really had two ways to communicate around the planet at that point. We could either bounce radio signals off the ionosphere, which is a hit or miss thing that really depends on stuff like weather and solar activity, or... Um, we had the transoceanic cables. The idea was if we launch a whole bunch of little tiny reflective surfaces that are half the wavelength used for communications into orbit, they could scatter all those radio signals back down, essentially reinforcing the ionosphere, making this communication something that works more consistently. So there was order of 500 million, less than two centimeter long, roughly thin hair sized needles of right. copper <gasps> launched into a medium sized orbit where some of it continues to be today. There, there are over 30 clumps of these needles still in orbit. One of the clumps actually came down a couple of weeks ago, which is how this came to Gordon's attention and then my attention. Right. And when this was first done, scientists around the world were like, bad idea. Oh, good. Do not do this, oh, U.S. At least people understood that at the time. And, and this apparently didn't stop us. But so far, these haven't caused a huge problem. And part of the reason they haven't caused a huge problem is they only had one successful launch of this program. And all the successive plans to launch more of these into belts around the planet were canceled. So we have... 
deteriorating belts of little tiny needles right. that were planned out in my hometown of Westford, Massachusetts, and are great if you're a ham radio operator and want something to bounce your signal off of and you know exactly where to point, um, but otherwise are a special misbegotten mistake of doing things without understanding their consequences. Luckily, shortly after they started launching these things, folks realized we can just launch communication satellites. And so instead of launching things to bounce radio signals off of, we just started launching right. relay stations. Much, much smarter idea. I, but it's just like the example of, of somebody, just like somebody saying, oh, I really miss Scotland. I wish I could just have a Scottish broom in my garden here on Vancouver Island or in New Zealand. Uh, that's all we have now. It's just, it's everywhere, right? You can, unintended consequences. We have tons yes. of invasive species. Someone, there's plenty of examples in the past where someone just thinks of this idea and they just do it. And then, and then we suffer the consequences of it for decades. Um, so let's, let's talk about what we can do to mitigate this, this problem. How can we, I guess, minimize creating new space junk and then how can we clean up the, the space junk that already exists? Well, the first thing that we have to do is track the space junk. And we're doing this with radar facilities. Ironically enough, Haystack Observatory at that Lincoln Labs, where the Westford needles were developed, is now one of the places doing the tracking. <laughs> so it first created the junk. Now it watches the junk. And totally fair. This helps us learn just what kinds of things we have to worry about. And it allows us to know, okay, so we want to launch things that have the ability to get out of the way of other stuff. So once you're on orbit, you need the ability to maneuver. And we now have a plan that once things are launched, not only do they regularly get out of the way of other missions, but before they run out of fuel, they're supposed to put themselves someplace safe, either deorbiting by coming down through the atmosphere or boosting themselves up out of the way into a parking orbit, a graveyard orbit, if you will. So that's, that's step one is right. have an exit strategy and know how to dance when you're on orbit. And there's been some pretty clever ideas for this. I mean, not just you talk about thrusters. Uh, there's been some ideas about like a tether that you unreal yes. from the bottom of your spacecraft. And it can be very small and very light. Like it actually adds like a couple of kilograms to the weight of your spacecraft satellite they can even be installed on cubesats miniature versions of these and imagine you're dragging behind this 10 kilometer long wire that is dragging you back down through the atmosphere and so what might take you decades hundreds of years to come back to the come back through the the atmosphere happens over the course of a couple of months and so you've got lots of great ways to fairly inexpensively and not very difficultly to to make your spacecraft crash back into the atmosphere. And in these space tethers, there's been some really good articles and work done in collaboration with the Planetary Society. And we look forward to seeing all the ways that people find to take advantage of tethers, light sails, and things that, like you said, aren't propulsion that allow them to move around on orbit. So that's fine. I mean, for the for the future satellites, each one has to have some mechanism for re returning itself back into the atmosphere or into the ocean or into the cosmic graveyard. What about the stuff that was launched before anybody thought that this was maybe a problem? 
some yeah. satellite that is too high. It's going to be there for a few hundred thousand or thousand years. It's a potential to crash into other things. It's dead now. What do we do with it? And this is where we are seeing a few different kinds of plans. One is to use little tiny things that you go maneuver yourself up to one satellite and then in in a single use bring that satellite either up or down, pick a direction. And so you can launch a bunch of essentially CubeSat thrusters that each go and take care of one piece of junk that's big enough to grab hold of. A lot of stuff isn't big enough to grab hold of. So there's also plans to build what essentially, to me, who's not sporty in any way, uh, look like giant baseball mitts of net to go up and sweep up stuff and then gather it up and bring it down. And then there's the idea of having some of the coolest designs I've seen look like giant O's, giant donuts flying through space that will go up, grab something, move it, let go, go grab something else, move it. And so you essentially have these reusable flying tugboats. I think that the the biggest problem that people need to understand is that it's not like a – I mean you say tugboat. And so you imagine this boat that's going putt, putt, putt and it's moving around the ocean. It goes over to one piece of junk and it grabs it. It goes over another piece of junk and grabs it. It's not that. It's each piece of junk, and we talked about this, that there are tens of thousands, if not already, 100,000 pieces of junk of various sizes from a centimeter up to spent rocket boosters. Each one has its own special trajectory that it's moving at, say, seven to eight kilometers per second. So so each one is like trying to catch a bullet. And and so you have to – like if you want to catch one, you have to launch your spacecraft. You have to match orbit with it. You grab onto this thing with your little tweezers and then you and you – or hug the booster and then you and the booster crash into the atmosphere. Well, you just spent $100 million to launch one of these little catchers. One down, 900 – sorry, 99,000 to go. Launch your next rocket to grab one more little piece of space junk, dock with it, take it down. Like the scale is incomprehensible to try and, to bring these down. And and this is where you really have to see it in terms of taking care of things in a band around the planet. I I always imagine this sort of like in in old westerns where you see the the person on horseback racing down to catch the runaway carriage and somehow getting from the back of one horse onto the runaway carriage it's that order of chaos but at thousands of times faster yeah. speeds yeah. so one satellite will grab one and then it will have a cone of catchability that it can move on to another. Maybe it's got one more in the can. Yeah. And then it goes down. So so you're going to take care of things that are in a roughly equatorial orbit inclined 20 degrees with a node right. in a certain place. So you can get take care of things roughly in this one orbital band. Then you have another one that takes care of things in another orbital right. band. 
And we have satellites orbiting essentially around the equator on various inclinations, and we have things orbiting the poles. So there are things essentially at right angles to yes. one another. And when they collide, they will... It's put, bad. Yeah, they'll, this problem is only going to get worse. They'll put them into new directions. All right, there is one idea that can solve all our problems, but it means putting a weapon of mass destruction into space, and that's a gigantic laser. So let's talk about this idea. So so with a laser, you can literally push things around. So the idea is you simply launch a energy-guzzling massive laser that works in probably something like the infrared, and you use it to hopefully push into new stable orbits and not destroy. Right. Because if you destroy, if you pop yeah. a satellite, you've just made your problem worse. Yeah. What you're wanting to do is you're wanting to, to zap the satellite a little bit so that a little piece of it vapor, vaporizes and you've made a little thruster, a random little thruster off the side of your, sat, off your space junk. And so you're, you're sort of – as these pieces of junk are flying past your wing, zap, and each one gets this tiny little thrust. And over time, this laser can just be tracking – piece after piece after piece, just shooting at everything that comes by and slowly pushing them all down. But the downside is a satellite-killing laser in space. And no one wants to let anyone else have the responsibility for something like that. And if no nation wants to let any other nation do that, it, it's one of those things that's great on paper, also terrifying on paper, but is probably never going to happen unless the, the international community agrees on some very special who do we let control this agreements yeah. that in this current world I don't see happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we painted a kind of dystopian uh, <laughs> possibility for the future. The, the, you know, in all the reporting that we've done, the one that's most likely over the long term is that it, it just adds additional risk. It is this additional cost of doing business that you will lose more and more satellites. It will become more and more difficult. There will be more damage that's done. It's just friction to the entire future of of space exploration and and it's going to suck and so and and the sooner we get on to this the better the future will tell yeah but until then we're just just gonna watch those nearly a million pieces of debris and those over six thousand active satellites and hope that their paths never cross exactly thanks pamela thank you fraser we'll see you next week all right. Do you have some names for us this week? I do. So while we're like fancy pants now on television, we don't have any commercial sponsors yet. So we rely on you to keep this content coming week after week. And this week, I want to thank uh, Ben Lieberman, Bill Hamilton, Joshua Pearson, Jack Mudge, Richard Riviera, Cindy Walker, Alexis, Tomic Sepstruck, Nicole Vorsek, William Andrews, Jeff Collins, Harald Bardenhagen, Arctic Fox, Merrick Vidarni, Ben Floss, Elad Avron, Nate Detweiler, Ron Thorson, Philip Walker, David, Kartik Ventika Traman. G4184, Andrew Stevenson, Donald E. Munda, Scott Bieber, 
Father Prax, Auntie User, Rachel Fry, Matt Newbold, Anthony Burgess, Stephen Shewalter, Dean McDaniel, Jen Grewald, Bart Flannerty, and Dean. Thank you all for being out there and being our patrons that allow us to do what we do and to have Richard, Nancy, Allie, all of them out there putting together our show, getting things on YouTube, on the various podcatchers, and hopefully every week improving our quality bit by bit. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast. <laughs>